All right, and we're actually now, you can turn to Psalms 27 and 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, again, it's Psalm 27 and 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're continuing in our series called I Am David. And the idea behind this is we're kind of going through the life of David and looking at a few of the, the characteristics of his heart. Because it says of David that he was a man after God's own heart. And if I want something to be said of me, that's what I want to be said. That I loved God and I was going after him and I was continuing to be made into the image. My heart was being shaped to be shaped like the heart of God. And one of the cool things about David, though, is he's so much like us. He makes some really boneheaded mistakes in his life. He's not a perfect character. He has flaws and, and he stumbles at times. And so we can relate to that. We see when we look at David that it's a flawed individual that God was able to miraculously use as he surrendered his heart to Jesus and kept coming back to him time and time again. And today we're looking at David the worshiper. If you were to look at the life of David and say, what is one characteristic that really was the, the defining quality of his life? What summed him up? It would be that he was a worshiper. You know, it was out of his worship heart that everything else we see happened. It was out of his worship heart that we see David the warrior that's able to go out and take on Goliath. It's out of the worship heart that we see David the faithful friend to Jonathan. It's out of that faithful heart that we see the loyal servant to King Saul, even when Saul was a terrible king. Every part of David's life flowed out of the fact that, above all else, he was a worshiper. The constant desire, the drive, the motivation inside of his life was for the presence of God. He didn't want to live his life knowing that there was a God and feeling distant from him. He wanted to call on the presence of God daily, to live constantly knowing and hosting the presence of God in his life. And it says this, I think he really sums it up in Psalm 27, verse 8. It says, and this is God, he says, You have said, seek my face. And so David replies, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. See, God called David, just like he's called all of us, to have an intimate relationship with him. It's not supposed to be something that is a superficial relationship. It's not supposed to be a cultural formality. It's supposed to be something where we're seeking after the face of God. And I love that God says, seek after my face. He could have said, seek after anything. But he says, seek after my face. Because the face and the eyes, that's the most intimate part of us. When you talk to someone and you're not real close to them, you don't know them real well and there's a lot of eye contact, it feels awkward. I had to do this drill once in a psychology class where you had to stare at someone, a stranger's eyes for two minutes. You couldn't break eye contact. I have never felt more naked, vulnerable, and exposed than I did for those two minutes with a stranger just staring me in my eyes. But when it's someone that I'm close to, like my wife, I mean, I could gaze into her eyes forever. If she's talking to me, and if I'm talking, I'm on my phone or something, she's like, look at me, and I'm like, what? Because she wants to have that eye contact. There's this connection that happens. There's an intimacy that comes with the face. And so that's what God is saying is, I want you to seek after my face. I want you to know me in a deep, intimate, relational way. I don't want it to be distant. I don't want it to be something that's just an add-on to your life. The way that I want you to know me is the way that's the closest way that you possibly can. Like a husband and a wife know each other. Like when you're talking to your kids and you just want to look at their face and you want to have that eye contact with them. That's what I've called you to have. And in response to this, David says, My heart says, Your face, Lord, do I seek. 
See, David wasn't satisfied with knowing God any other way than in that intimate way that God had called him to. He was going to seek him out. It was the driving purpose. It was his mission in life. All the way from when he was this little kid that was out there watching the sheep and clubbing bears and everything else that you read about, all the way to going to being the anointed king of Israel, to being the king, and even when he's on his deathbed, he's a man who is passionate about worshiping God. He's passionate about knowing God. And it didn't matter what the cost was. It didn't matter what it might you know, mean for him personally, financially, professionally. He said, the number one thing in my life that I'm going after is God's presence. Because God's presence is the most precious thing that there is. When we worship, this is what it means. The word worship means the worth of something. So when you worship, what you're doing is you're ascribing worth to it. So if you're making the pursuit of your life, your career, you're trying to advance up the corporate ladder, you're making sacrifices, you're putting your energy, your time, and your attention into following your career, your education, then you've assigned a worth to it that's greater than other things, and now it becomes something that you are worshiping. The same thing can happen with wealth, materialism, whatever it is. You can assign worth to something that makes you sacrifice and you can keep putting your time and energy and effort into this thing you're pursuing and by doing that, you worship it. And David says, I'm going to assign the most worth in my life to you, God, so that I'm willing to sacrifice my energy, my time, and my efforts that I would spend on other things to going after you. God, I'm going to worship you. I want to know you more than anything. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we pick up in the story of David, and it's just really kind of a complex, rich story of worship. And it's not one that typically is used when you teach on worship. But the background of it is David's been the anointed king over Israel. He was anointed as a teenager, and then it was, he was about 30 years old, or maybe a little bit older, when he actually became the king. So a long time has gone on here while he's been waiting to ascend to his proper throne. And during this time, he's gone from being the little goat-herding sheep boy to a giant slayer. He becomes the captain of the army. He's Saul's most loyal servant. And then Saul turns on him because Saul recognizes that this is God's chosen person, so I'm going to try to kill him and get rid of him so I can maintain the throne. So he goes off. He's being, he has spears thrown at him by Saul. It's Saul sending assassins after him, all kinds of crazy things. He's living in caves and hiding in the desert. And the whole time, he's like, God, what happened? I'm the anointed king of Israel, and here I am having to hide and be chased around. But in the midst of all of that, God preserves him, God upholds him, protects him, and leads him to the place of where he becomes the king over all of Israel, just like God said that he would be. And after he becomes king, the Philistines, who are the constant enemy in the Israel narrative, they decide, well, there's a change in rulership going on. That's an opportune time for us to attack. So they come to attack the new king, and David prays, and he says, God, what should we do? Should I go out there and should I fight the Philistines? And God says, yes, he should go out and fight them. So he goes out there, and they beat him soundly, and he's like, yes, God, you are awesome. Like, you gave me the throne, you're defeating my enemies. And then the Philistines, I don't know if they just weren't smart or what, but they say, hey, we just got beat real bad, let's go fight them again. And so they come back to attack Israel again after they just got beat by this new king. And David, I think this really says a lot about his character. He doesn't just say, I'm going to charge out there and fight them again. He comes back to God again and says, God, what should I do? Should I go out there and fight them? And God says, no this time. God says, I want you to go hide behind these trees. And when you hear the sound of of marching in the tops of the trees that you're hiding under, then you know that the Lord has come, that the Lord has delivered the enemy into your hands. 
See, he didn't even have to go fight the Philistines the second time. God went and fought them for him. How crazy is that? How could life possibly be going any better for you than after 15 years you're finally made king, God's going out there marching through treetops that you're hiding in and he's fighting your enemies for you. Like David is pumped up. This is a great moment for him. And when you have those awesome spiritual high moments in your life, one of two things can happen. You can either lead you to a place of worship or where you say, God, thank you for just the incredible blessings that you've poured out on me. You are so good. There is no one who is like you. Or when the times are really good for you, it can be easy to be like, wow, I'm pretty impressive. Look what I have done. It's a test to see your character when things are going bad. We all know that. But there's a test of your character as well when things are going really good for you. Because if you look at the story of Israel, what happens is times are bad. They all say, oh, God, come and save us. We're so sorry. We're going to follow you forever. And then God comes and fights for them. Things go well. And then they're like, God, who? I did this. But David, when things are going well for him, he worships. And it says this in 2 Samuel chapter 6. After they've won this big battle, the next thing he does is, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, let's talk about like the actual physical manifest presence of God at that time resided on this throne that was made up from the wings of the angels touching on the ark. And this is the most holy, incredible object that there is on the face of the earth. This is where God resides. And then it says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of, of oh man, Abinadab, I actually practiced that and that didn't help, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Anabadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor near Nakan, Uzzah put his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Pera Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now, things aren't going according to plan for David. This isn't how he envisioned it. He thought, you know what, the ark has been sitting for years kind of abandoned on this border town. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to go recapture it and we're going to take it back to the tabernacle where it belongs. Because now that I'm king, things are going to be different. I want the presence of God. And so he goes out there and they're dancing around and they're celebrating and they're having a great time. And then tragedy strikes. As Uzzah is killed, and David, it says he gets angry with God. Because he can't understand, how is it that this happened? Why is it, God, that I'm trying to do this for you? I'm bringing you back to your rightful place in the tabernacle. I'm trying to honor you in doing this. We're dancing around, we're singing, we're having a great time, we're worshiping you. But then in this instant, you kill one of my people. David doesn't understand it. 
It doesn't make any sense to him. And he's angry. And he begins to say, you know what? I don't want the ark of God near me. Maybe the presence of God isn't such a good thing in my life. Because I was doing all the right things, and yet this disaster befell me. And that's not something that happens just to David. This is something that happens to all of us at times. There are times when tragedy comes in your life, when it feels like you're doing everything right, when you feel like you've been honoring God and you've been worshiping him, and something happens to you and it just makes no sense to you. It can make you angry towards God, and it can make it so instead of running after the presence of God and seeking him like you were, you just want to draw away from him. Now, Ann and I, when we were getting ready to plant the church, we were supposed to move over here on uh, January 1st of 2012 was our target date. We decided that about a year in advance. And then we got pregnant, and that our baby was due in January. So we thought, okay, well, we're going to push back the move date to February. But we were celebrating, like, you know, life is good. We're, we're getting ready to plant this church. The fruition of our dreams for, for me for 15 years is finally about to happen. We have our first child on the way. Life is good. And as we're getting ready to go about two months before we moved over here and two months before our baby was born, uh, we found out that her father had stage 4 colon cancer. And they found the cancer in 18 of the 20 nodes that they tested. And they gave him about a 14% chance of survival. And I was like, God, what, what happened here? You know, we're getting ready to have this baby. It's the first grandchild. We're getting ready to go and we're getting ready to plant this church. But all right, God, I've seen you heal so many times I've seen you healing me. I've seen you healing other people. God, we're going to pray and believe that you can heal my father-in-law. And so we move over here, and for the next year, it's tough because we're watching him get weaker and weaker. We're watching the cancer grow, and it spreads. And then finally, in February of 2013, he came over here to the University of Michigan Hospital as a last-ditch effort to try to save his life. And I remember the doctor pulling me out of the room and, and telling me that he probably wasn't going to make it through the night and we had to call the family and so they could come and say their goodbyes. And I remember feeling like, God, what happened here? You know, we planted this church. I, mean, I gave up everything. I, I had a job, we had a home, we had friends, I had a dog, all of these things. You know, I've walked away from all, and really, like, the dog was the last straw for me. It was the most insignificant thing, but it's like, God, planting a church has even cost me my dog now? And we're there at his bedside for two days, because we're just waiting, and we're praying. And then finally, you have to go home, because you just have to sleep at some point. So we're taking shifts, and we're going back to my house, the family is, and we're getting in our naps, and I remember Ann and I, we finally got back and we're just exhausted emotionally and spiritually. We don't understand what's going on. And I just had that moment of brokenness where I just started crying. And there was other family in the house, but you know, sometimes when the tears come, there's nothing you can do about it. And so I'm, I'm weeping loudly and I'm like, God, how can this be happening? He's such a good man. You know, I've left everything for you. I've been obedient to you in everything you've called me to. We've laid our lives down to plant this church. Couldn't, if anybody deserved to have someone healed, couldn't you do that one simple thing for me? And I was mad at God. I didn't understand. 
It didn't make any sense to me how I could be following God so closely and yet this tragedy could be happening. And what I discovered in that moment is you can spend a long time feeling mad, from, mad at God and, and saying, God, I, I don't want to seek after your presence. Sometimes when you feel like that's happened to you, like the last thing you want to do is go after God and worship him and ask him to come and to heal your broken heart. Sometimes like, God, I just, I don't want to seek you anymore. But David discovered something in this moment as he felt like that. And it says in 2 Samuel 6, 11 through 15, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his household. And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. You see, what happened was for three months, he's feeling mad at God and he's not wanting the presence of God in his life because he doesn't understand how it was that God could allow this thing to happen. And you know, there's a whole theological thing as to why it happened, but at the moment, David didn't understand what was happening. And so many times, we don't understand the reasons that we're going through the things that we do. You might never understand some of the things that you go through in life. But here is what David discovered, one of the truest characteristics of God that you can look at and know that this is 100% for certain, is that God is good. And all he had to do was to look around to see that truth on display. Because what was happening was, Obed-Edom, who wasn't even a Jew, he wasn't even one of the covenant people of God, he wasn't supposed to receive the blessings of God, but because of God's presence there in his household, it says that God pours out his goodness on his life and everything in his household is being blessed. And this is what happened to Anna and I. As we sat there crying in our beds and wondering how this could happen to such an undeserving person and to us after all that we had done for God, everything that we thought we were doing right, was God spoke to my heart and he said, Trust me that I am good. And so I did. And right there I said, God, you are good. And I began to bless God and I began to worship him and I began to say, God, you are a healer. It doesn't matter what it is that I see, you are a healer. God, you are so good. I began to look back at my life and see all of the undeserved blessings that God had poured out on myself and my family, starting with salvation. It's like, God, who am I that you're even mindful of me? Who am I that you should pour out your grace? Who am I that you should go to the cross for me? God, the parents I was born into, I have just incredible parents. I didn't do anything to deserve those parents, but they raised me and they taught me to love Jesus and to fear him and to walk in his ways. I began to look at the incredible wife God had given me, the child God had given me, my family, my friends, the church, all of these things. Like I was just broken by how good God had been to me and there was no question of anything that I was seeing. Even though I didn't understand what was happening, still I was so convinced of God's goodness and in that moment as I began to see after God, as I began to worship him in my brokenness without understanding, the presence of God just rushed into my life like I had never encountered before. 
And in the midst of that hurting, he brought me peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And he began to heal that broken heart of mine. And he said, I am a healer. And your father-in-law is going to be more healed than you can ever imagine. And today my father-in-law is more healed than anyone has ever been on the face of this earth. And the hope that I have, God is so good, this is just one of the other things like, that when we die, we don't just die and we're not gone forever. It's a temporary parting and it hurts, but we have the hope of glory. That Jesus hasn't abandoned us to death. Jesus hasn't abandoned us to separation from our loved ones, but he paid the ultimate price. He laid down his life so that we could have everlasting life. God is so good that even death cannot stop him. Even in death, there is a blessing that comes to us. And it changed my world, just like it changed David's. And here's what I want you to know, is that everybody comes into these moments. Whether it be a marriage that falls apart, a death, an illness, a tragedy, a child relationship that's been messed up or that walks away from God, or whatever it is, there are these tragedies that strike us in the middle of what seems like we're following God so perfectly. And in that moment, the enemy is going to tell you that God isn't good, that he isn't worthy of your worship, and he's going to tell you that you need to draw away from the presence of God so that you will feel safe and secure. But that is a lie. And the truth is, in those times, you need to worship God all the more. You need to say, God, you are worth more than anything. And even when I don't understand, instead of choosing to be angry at you, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to bless your name and I'm going to seek you with everything that's inside of me. And as you do that, you will encounter the presence of God in your life in a way that you can't even fathom. And he will pour out his peace on you. And he will pour out healing on your heart. God is that good. And here's what we can look at the life of David. If we want to be able to go through these moments quickly, like he did, instead of allowing this to be something that takes years to get over or separates us from an intimate relationship with God forever, the focus of a worshiper is, number one, the love of God. Psalm 36, 7, David wrote, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. He's saying, it's not even that I love you, which he did, but he says, but your love, God, it's precious to me. It's something that I cherish. You know, the, the number one thing that I love about my wife is that she loves me. I mean, that's true. You know why I married her? She loves me. <laughs> a lot of girls don't. <laughs> but she was the first one I found that loved me, so I said, all right, this is a done deal. And as I, you know what stirs up my heart so much to love her even more is when I see how much she loves me. When I see how she blesses my life and the sacrifices that she makes to love me. Oh man, that just makes me even more passionate about her. And David's saying the same thing. Is like, God, your love is so precious to me. It stirs up my heart to love you even more. When you're not feeling real lovey towards God, begin to focus on how much he loves you. John 3.16, this is a verse that everybody knows. You see it at football games and NASCAR events if you don't know it. For God so loved the world that he gave, gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's not saying that God loves the world so much. It's saying God loved the world in this way. That's what the word means. This is how God showed you that he loves you. He laid down his life for you. You know, whenever I meet someone that serves in the military or 
I'm always blown away, like, or especially people have been injured. I'm like, you took a bullet for me. I've never done anything for you. I'm like, thank you so much that you would be willing to sacrifice for me. And when it comes to God, that the holy, the pure, the perfect God would be willing to come down and lay down his life for me, a sinful, wretched, rebellious person. There's no greater sacrifice than that. And it causes me to love him as I reflect on that. You know, we don't come to God because we just made this decision one day that, God, I'm going to love you. What happened was you had a revelation of God's love for you. It says that we love because God first loved us. And one day, you had that revelation of God's love and his goodness for you, and it broke your heart, and you were blown away by it. And that love that God has for you stirred up a love in your heart for him. The number one thing that we do as worshipers is we focus on the love of God for us. Number two, the holiness of God. You know, God isn't like us. Yeah, I see those t-shirts, like, Jesus is my homeboy. I'm like, no, he's not. He's your Lord and Savior. We're not on the same plane. He's not our chum. He loves us more than anyone. We've been invited into the throne room of God's. We've been made sons and daughters. We've been blessed in the heavenly realms of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, but we are not on equal footing with him. And sometimes you just have to accept the fact that God is holy, that God is sovereign, that he is the all-powerful one, and we are not. And when things happen that we don't understand or that we don't know, we don't have to hold God accountable to our standards for him. He's the judge, not us. He is all-powerful. And that's what happened with David. He didn't understand why this guy was struck dead by God. But he recognized that God is holy, that God is just, and that God is sovereign. I remember the first time I really had this awareness of God. And this is what David says, like, that day David began to fear God. You know, a lot of people love Jesus. But fearing God... That's something different. That doesn't mean, oh, God's going to strike me down at any moment. I have to be scared of him. It means that there's a holy reverence and awe and a respect for him. Uh, one of the great 80s title evangelists ended up in jail. I saw a jailhouse interview with him, and they said, when did you stop loving Jesus? He said, I never stopped loving Jesus. I stopped fearing him. And when you don't have the fear of God that you're supposed to have as a worshiper, that holy reverence for who he is, you won't truly worship him. What happens is God becomes too much like you. I'm not, I mean, a lot of us worship ourselves. We, that's a temptation of humanity. But when you make God so that there's no awe of him anymore, you don't fear him anymore. You have to live with that recognition of how powerful God is. But the good news in that is that although God is all-powerful and he is holy and we are not, is that we can focus on the goodness of God. He is such a good God. In Psalm 34, 8, David said this, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, so many of these psalms that we read and the praise songs that we sing is talking about how good God is. And God's goodness isn't something that's this ethereal, uh, it's a theory type of a thing. It's like you can experience God's goodness. David says you can taste it. You can see it that you won't have to live your life wondering, is God good? Dive on into God and you will be amazed by his goodness. And when you are worshiping, your focus needs to be on that goodness of God. That's why David says, I'm going to enter into the courts of God with thanksgiving. 
He says, before I approach God, I'm going to first start out with being so thankful. God, you are so good. The blessings that you've poured out in my life. It doesn't say that you focus on the troubles that you have right now or the, the, the struggles that you're going through. It says that we focus on the goodness of God. And what happens is that says that's magnifying the Lord. And when I was a kid, I was like, what does that mean by magnify the Lord? Why does it say that? What it's saying is that I'm going to magnify God and his goodness by putting my thoughts and my attentions on those things. And as I do that, the scope of God's power and his goodness will grow in my mind as I become more aware of it and the problems in my life shrink up. Because I see the problem in comparison to the ultimate God. I'm like, that problem's nothing for my God. So we magnify God, we focus on his goodness. And then number four is we focus on the approval of God when we worship. 2 Samuel 6, 16 and 20 through 22. This is a continuation of that story. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. That's what you want every wife to feel about you. And David returns, as David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Ooh, that's burn. To appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. Oof. See what happens is when you worship God, you start to look pretty stupid in the eyes of the rest of the world. For some reason, it's okay to go to a football game and watch people toss a dead pig through the air. And be like, yeah! And like people have their chest painted and their shirts off and they're celebrating and jumping up and down. But when it comes to worshiping God, we're like, all right. Because what happens is, you'll see like the people, like you feel God and it says, you know, God says, I want that holy hand should be lifted towards me. So in your mind, you're like, yes, God, thank you for everything that you're doing and you're dancing in your mind. But you're kind of looking around and you're like, Jesus, you know, because like you don't want to look stupid in front of other people. You know, Celeste Tibbs, she isn't here today so I can talk about her, but she sits in the second row right there in the middle every day. And you can hear she's like, Lorraine! She's swinging around because you know what happened? God did the miraculous in her life. She was as broken as any person has ever been in the history of this world. And Jesus came and restored her. And she says, I can't help but worship God and celebrate what he's done in my life. Because God is so good. And she doesn't care what anybody else thinks. And I'm not saying we all have to be like Celeste Tibbs. But we all have to get to the point where we say, you know what, I don't care what anybody around me thinks. Whether that be I just kind of sit here and I'm just kind of swaying or I'm like, yeah, or if you're just going for it. Whatever it is, you're not doing this for the approval of the people that are around you. You're doing this for the approval of God. And I will become abased and contemptible in the eyes of all of those around me because the only thing I care about is what my father thinks about me and am I honoring and worshiping him. My little son, I love watching him dance around. It's like watching kids dance is the most free thing ever. You know what's going to happen is someday he's not going to want to dance in front of his parents because he's going to feel stupid. Somewhere there's that consciousness that becomes aware of caring about what other people think about you. We need to get rid of that. Who cares? I'm doing this for Jesus, and if you think that I can't dance, you're right. But God doesn't care. <laughs> and number five, the presence of God. Psalm 27.4 says this. He wrote, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That was what David wanted. He said, and he wrote this while he's out living in the desert in a cave. He's not in the palace that's been promised to him. He's living in a cave. And he says, the only thing that I want in my life is your presence, God. And it doesn't matter what else I might have. Take away everything, believe me, Jesus, and I have everything. You know, at the time of David, there were two temples. There was the temple of Moses, which was the tabernacle, and that was in a city called Shiloh. And that was where the ark was supposed to be kept. And that was where all the priests were making sacrifices and they were coming in and they're making their showbread and lighting candles and doing all of the ritualistic things to worship God. But when David recovers the ark, he doesn't take it back to Shiloh, to the tabernacle there. He takes it to the city of David. That's a small portion of Jerusalem where David lived. And he doesn't put it in the tabernacle. He puts a tent up right next to his house. And he puts the ark of God there because he wants the presence of God there with him. He doesn't want it being far away. And he doesn't make it so that it's all shut off and nobody can come in. He throws the flaps of this tent wide open and he invites everybody to come in and to encounter the presence of God. And 24-7, there were musicians who were there playing their instruments and they were singing worship and they were praying and they were blessing the name of the Lord. And in that environment, the miraculous happened. And this is the question that I think God's asking us today. Which temple do you want to worship at? Do you want to go to the temple of Moses with the form and the rituals? But you know what happened in that temple? The presence of God was gone and nobody even knew it. They just kept going on like nothing had happened, but the presence of God wasn't there. Because God didn't create us to worship like that. He created us to worship in spirit and in truth. He put his spirit in us. We have become the temple of the living God. He resides and he dwells in us. And he's called us to be a worshiper who doesn't worship from afar, but have we pitch the tent and we say, God, I want you right here with me. I can't stand to have your presence far away. I need your presence and I'm going to come after your presence. I'm going to assign your presence in my life the highest value and I'm going to leave everything else behind to come after you, Jesus. Because your presence is all I need. And that's the heart of a worshiper. Do you guys stand with me this morning? Let's pray. This morning, if you've been going through one of those seasons in your life where you have allowed distance to come into your relationship with God and you haven't been worshiping Him out of that personal, intimate, seeking the face of God type of a relationship, And today, God's calling you to seek his face. You can know God. Jesus said this. You want to know what eternal life is? He says, eternal life is knowing God the Father and me, the Christ, who he has sent. Jesus said, I came to bring you life abundantly. You were created to live in the abundance of the relationship with God, of knowing God personally of seeking after his heart, encountering his presence. You were made to be a worshiper. And maybe you've never had that before, but God's calling you to, or maybe you've had that kind of relationship. But there's been a tragedy that struck. And there's been anger or resentment. And instead of going after God and worshiping him and seeking his presence, you've been hiding from him. 
this morning, God isn't ashamed of you for that. He's calling you back. So at the prodigal son, there wasn't any condition set upon return. He just said, I want you to come back. And God's calling us all into that this morning. And this morning, if God's been speaking to your heart and you want to know God in that way, then I encourage you, just as a sign to God, and said, so I can pray with you. You'd be willing to raise your hand, every eye is closed. But it's to say, God, I want to know you. I want to have relationship with you. I want your closeness, your presence in my life, and I'm going to come after you with everything inside of me. Thank you so much. Thank you. And let's pray this together. Jesus, thank you for your love. I believe that you died on the cross, that you rose again. I ask you to forgive my sins. I ask you to send your Holy Spirit into my heart. Feel me fresh and new this morning. God, teach me to hear your voice and teach me to seek your face. God, I'm coming after you. I want your presence. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.